0: About 25 people in the sanctuary tonight. Everybody looks wonderful. Uh, This is the first Wednesday night that we've actually had anyone to be in the sanctuary with the media team and with me. And it is good to have you here, and I am thankful and grateful we are together. So, as we open God's Word tonight, let's start with a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, thank you so much that we are together tonight. Some of us literally in your house, but all of us, Lord, in your house of worship and study tonight. And I thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the many who are joining us by media tonight, not just here in our little community of Amherst County, but uh, on further, further through Virginia, Father. We are so thankful. And just pray that you bless us as we open your word, Father. We are studying through the entirety of your Bible, looking from the mountaintops down on your word, Lord. uh, Just hitting the high spots as we see the thread of love and grace that runs through the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, Lord, that leads us to your throne of salvation and grace and eternal life. And Father, tonight we are thankful that as we open your word, you join with us. Father, thank you for using my voice and my tongue, but you are our teacher, Lord. And I pray that you will take the reins of control and teach us your word, Father. Help us to see the connection of love that runs throughout your word, Father. Uh, It is not a, a group of disconnected stories, Father, but rather it is the truth that you lay before us, and it is written as a love letter to your people. And so, Father, tonight... We open it expecting to hear your word and expecting to receive your blessing, Father, as you join with us. We love you, Lord. Again, I thank you for every person here joining us by media, uh, an FM signal out in the parking lot, and right here in the sanctuary tonight. Father, we are grateful to be before you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to continue on in our study through the entirety of God's word. We're starting a new section tonight. Uh, The section that we're beginning now is the kingdoms and the prophets. So that's a new section of study that will carry us uh, through the next few lessons. Tonight is lesson number 15, and we are going to talk about King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now I'm going to back up a little bit uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, whether you're here in the sanctuary or joining us in another way. But as we begin this new section of study, we're considering the thread of love that runs through the Bible, the establishment of the kings of Israel, and God's calling then to the prophets of Israel as well. So we are progressing through the Old Testament as we are making this study tonight available and looking at how God is establishing a new form of leadership in the nation of Israel, moving from the judges to the kings Now, this is probably a portion of the Bible that many people, even seasoned Christians who have studied the Bible for many years, were not really comfortable with this section of the Bible and the passage of how the power of Israel plays out from the judges uh, to the kings and on through the prophets. Uh, So, one main reason that we study this is that this is a history section of the Bible as well. But one of the reasons that this is a difficult section of the Bible to understand is because this First Samuel and Second Samuel, first Kings and Second Kings, and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles overlap each other in the timeline. And so that makes it a little difficult for us to read through those six books of the Bible. And you have history overlapping itself rather than running chronologically. And so it's a little bit difficult for us to maintain uh, the, the time frame as to how time is running as we go through these books of the Bible. And then, to complicate matters a little more, throw Psalms into the mix. Because the Psalms were largely written during this period of time. So this is not an easy timeline to figure out, but we're going to do this together, we're in this together, and we're going to study it together. As we think about uh, the history uh, of the nation of Israel thus far, of course, as we move on back from Israel's creation through Abraham and the patriarchs, and, of course, they end up uh, through Joseph living in Egypt, and after Joseph dies, they end up as slaves in Egypt for centuries And finally, through the leadership of Moses, as God sends him as his man, they are released from slavery there. They go into the wilderness because of their disobedience. They uh, do not actually get to the promised land in the time frame that God would have intended for them. They wandered for 40 years. It was essentially an 11-day trip from uh, Egypt to the edge of the promised land. But because of their disobedience, because of their wickedness, because of their doubt, because of their faithlessness, God allowed them to wander 40 years. Now, in the process of their wandering, sort of a punishment from God, here's the one caveat. God never left them. God was always there for them. God fed them every day. God provided water. Uh, I mentioned something that uh, is an interesting fact, and that is God never allowed their clothing to wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Uh, I can't explain that, how their shoes grew with the children, how that might have worked, but uh, that's a miracle of God that he was with them even through their 40 years of disobedience in wandering in the wilderness. And then, of course, they enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and they come as a group of people. And they Now, here is a very key point of our study and the history line here. God tells the nation of Israel to go in that this is a gift to them, the, the, the promised land, Canaan land, is a gift to his people, but they have to work to conquer it, and they are to conquer it completely. Uh, they are to vanquish all the inhabitants of Canaan, and you remember there were Girgashites and, and all kinds of ites who lived in Canaan land, uh, but we know that they were supposed to vanquish and clear out and literally decimate, kill all the inhabitants of the land. The reason for that is the land was so extremely lost in wickedness. People had gotten so far away from God. God can can always reach someone, but a person can get so far away that he or she won't come back. And that's where the Canaanites were. So God said, in order for you, Israel, to maintain this land in holiness and righteousness, you have to wipe out all of the population of Canaan land. However, Israel did not do that. They wiped out most of the inhabitants of Canaan land, but not all of them. They allowed some Canaanites to continue to live there, and they coexisted with them. There's a problem in that. When Israel did not decimate all the inhabitants of the land, but they allowed a remnant to live there and coexisted with them, there was a problem. That remnant That remained were a bad influence on Israel and the Israelites leading there. That remnant of the Canaanites led Israel into false God worship. That remnant of Canaanites led Israel away from their God, into wickedness, uh, into disobeying God. And the Canaanites and the Israelites eventually intermarried so that Israelites completely left God and went to the false gods of Canaan. So the real problem became Israel walking away from God because they didn't obey God in the first place to clear out the land completely. God wants the Israelites to be monotheistic. In other words, they are to recognize the one true God. They are to worship Him, serve Him, follow Him alone. But these leftover Canaanites have influenced a large part of the nation of Israel to be polytheistic. Maybe some of the Israelites tipped their hat to God, but they also worshipped the false gods of Canaan. And so they became polytheistic. They did not worship just the one true God, but they worshipped many gods. Our church today has to be very careful. That we keep our eyes on the one true God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. That we don't fall on our knees to worship the false gods of money and fame and politics and all of the things that surround us in these days. We too have to be very careful as we live in this land that we're not taken away from serving our one God by becoming polytheistic and serving other gods as well. We must keep our eyes on Him. Well, after the Israelites settled into Canaan, they were led by a series of judges. And I want to offer you an apology from last week's study. I told you several times there were 16 judges. I miscounted them. There are 15 judges. 15 judges. These 15 judges, one of them was female. Her name was Deborah. But these 15 judges actually represented the word and the presence of God Almighty as they led Israel in the promised land. So the judges were godly leadership. They were speaking the word of God to the people of God and leading them by God's hand. The judges represented God to the Israelites. Now as we learned at the uh, end of the, the last lesson that we studied, number 14, Israel made a sad decision. At the end of the 15 judges, as the last judge came through, which was Samuel, Israel made A horrible mistake. They looked at all of the nations of the world, and they said, We have decided that we want to be like all the other nations of the world. We don't want to worship simply God alone. But rather, we want to be led by a king. All the other nations of the world have a king. We've been led by these godly judges. We're ready now to have an earthly king, a human being to lead us as a king. They decided they didn't want to be unique in the world, led by the hand of God. They did not want to follow God's word to be the light to the nations, that all the other nations of the world would look at Israel and see God's leadership and God's love and them following a holy God and be influenced to become like Israel. Sadly, Israel compromised so that they wanted to become like the rest of the world. A problem, a serious problem, again, a problem that can speak to us, that we must be wary of and on guard about, and that we need to stand head and shoulders above our world, not water down and compromise what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, but we want the world to come to the Savior we serve, rather than water down what we believe so that we can become like the world we live in. Amen? We have to be very careful, and we're learning a lesson here from what the Israelites failed in. But I want to remind you of a sad statement. I ended the lesson last week with this statement when Samuel is so upset as the final judge that the people have this desire to move to an earthly king. So if you have your Bible tonight, we're going to primarily be in 1 Samuel. Open your Bible to 1 Samuel. Those of you watching by media, please open your Bible with us to 1 Samuel. Again, take some notes tonight, some of, these, uh, uh, some of these scriptures that I would like for you to read. But 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Samuel comes before God, and he is so distraught that Israel has made this decision to leave the leadership of God. But I want you to look at, Sam, at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And this is what God says to the final judge, Samuel. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. In other words, he's saying, let them have their earthly king. Hearken to their voice. Let them have their king. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, God says. That I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt... Even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. So God says, let them have their king. Samuel, they're not really striking out against you. They're leaving me. How sad for a statement of God. So Israel wants a powerful human figure for leadership, and their attention is going to be on that king rather than on the God of their nation. They, would, they want a commanding figure to lead them. So Samuel tells the people in, in the southern Virginia language that this was a crummy, crummy idea, what they wanted to do. But they want their own plan. So I want you to take this passage down, read it for yourself, but read First Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. As Samuel is telling the nation of Israel, you are making a terrible decision here that you're leaving God for an earthly king. Read that passage. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. But we meet the man who becomes the first king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Do you know his name? His name is Saul. He is tall. He is handsome. He is wealthy. He is a commanding figure and And the nation of Israel is drawn to him, and through Samuel, that last judge and the last prophet of God, in this judgeship role, God confirms that Saul is going to be the first king of the nation of Israel. Now, Saul, at first, is very humble he is uh, he is looking to the Lord and thankful to the Lord that he has been chosen for this huge leadership role in israel the first of its kings and he is crowned the king of israel in first samuel chapter 11 verse 15 and he begins very well he starts out his leadership of the nation as a very strong leader uh, israel is dominating its enemies through the leadership of saul he is doing a good job but saul comes to a great moment of disobedience Um, That moment of disobedience has to do with the way that he's offering a sacrifice unto God. He's doing it in in, in precisely the wrong way. But again, take down this reference, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 9 forward. You can see that Saul truly does walk away from God in the way that he is offering this sacrifice. He's trying to hurry up the matter rather than follow the footsteps of the Lord. He's acting on his own will. He is rejecting God's direction as the king. Now listen, especially when you're in a a position of godly leadership, uh, there's always a formula for failure when you think that your thought pattern and your actions are better than what God is going to direct you to do. Uh, That is not a good pattern for anyone who's going to be a leadership of God's people. And Samuel, the judge and the prophet, tells Saul that this dire mistake in the way that he's doing this sacrifice, has dire consequences. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14. So Samuel is warning Saul that he's making a terrible mistake. Look at chapter 13, 1 Samuel, verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee for now would the lord have established thy kingdom upon israel forever but now thy kingdom shall not continue the lord hath sought him a man after his own heart stop right there the lord has sought him a man after his own heart so god says Saul you disobeyed and he gives him the message through the judge samuel i God am going to replace you. Well, what's Samuel's description of this man who's going to take Saul's place? God is looking for a man after God's own heart, in verse 14. A man who will be loyal to God's leading, a man who will not compromise, a man who will not substitute his own thought process for the leadership of God Almighty. So God says, Samuel, tell him, I'm looking after a man after my heart. I'm looking for a man after my will. I'm looking for a man who's going to follow me, a man who is loyal to my leading. Well, as we read on through 1 Samuel chapters 14 and 15, we see Saul continuing to make bad decisions over and over again. One of the worst decisions that he made. Again, in this conquering of Canaan land, he, he spared the king of the Amalekites... A very wicked people, the king's name was Agag, a very ungodly, idolatrous, wicked leader. And Saul spared his life, and God was furious that he allowed that wickedness to live in his land. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, Fifteen eleven. God says this, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turning back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So Samuel, the judge, is so upset over the fact that Saul is making these bad decisions over and over again. Saul is, he comes to a point of being sorry. He comes to a point of being repentant. But his rebellion has been so deep that God will not restore him. That God will not take him back as king. He continues to reject Saul. Now, normally, kings of Israel would serve until they died. Normally, when a king would die, his son would take his place. But God removes Saul Not only did God remove Saul, but God also took the kingship away from Saul's entire family. A son would not replace him because of Saul's disobedience and Saul's wickedness. And now we're going to meet Saul's son, whose name is Jonathan. He is a good man. He is a warrior. He is strong. But because of his father's disobedience, he will never be the king. He will never take over the reins of control of the Israelite nation because of his father. Instead, God tells Samuel that he's going to seek out the next king. And so God tells Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. Because God says, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the new king. Look with me, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So God says to Samuel, as the last judge, go to Jesse in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house. And the first son who meets Samuel when he gets there, his name is Eliab. And Samuel says, this is one fine-looking, healthy, strong young man. This must be the new king that God has chosen. What a great young man, strong. Uh, he looks like he's a leader. But the Lord speaks a very important word to Samuel. Now, this is an important verse of Scripture. I want you to underline this one. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. I love what this says, and it has a truth that we cannot forget. Remember, Samuel said, Boy, this, this, this guy looks the part. This young man, Eliab, looks like the king. On the outside, he looks like he is the one who's going to take the kingship of Israel. But the Lord said unto Samuel, 16:7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. What a great statement. That deserves you to underline it, circle it, mind circled in red. The outward signals of a man, not what God sees. He, rather, He sees the signal of the heart and the condition of the heart. That's important for today. Isn't that an important word in serving the Lord day by day as his child, his son, or his daughter? He constantly looks on our hearts. What is our heart? What is my heart like before God? That's a primary statement from this study, and I love it. Uh, Again, that's part of the thread that runs through the Bible. God looks upon the heart, God looks upon the sin of the heart. God looks upon the wickedness and the disobedience of the heart. And we know in the day in which we live, praise God, we have a Savior who took that sin away so God could cleanse our heart. And God could give us eternal life and give us a purpose to fulfill in this life because we're serving His Son. God looks on the heart. That's a thread of the Bible that we need to take note of tonight. So Samuel then meets all of Jesse's sons. But God lets it be known that not one of these sons that Samuel has met is the chosen king that God has put his finger on. So Samuel says, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, well, yeah, I've got the run of the bunch you haven't met yet. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 16, 11, and 12. Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 11, and 12. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, it it contained in what Jesse says here is kind of like, well, my youngster is still out there in the field. He's just keeping the sheep. He's nothing but a little shepherd boy. I don't think you really want to see him. Samuel says, bring him in. And, of course, he is the chosen one of God. So Samuel has no doubt that this is God's choice. So Samuel anoints him as this chosen young man to take Saul's place as the next king of Israel. Now, anointing him means that he is set apart for a holy task. You know, we anoint babies at our baby dedication services. They are set apart by Jesus Christ for a purpose in their life. They need to come to Jesus as Lord and Savior to know what that purpose is. We set them apart for that purpose in a baby dedication service. We have anointed others, setting them apart for God's healing, for God's grace, for God's blessing. So an anointing here is setting a person apart for a holy task. Samuel anoints uh, this young boy, David, to this holy task of becoming the king. He doesn't become the king that moment, but rather Samuel recognizes him that he is going to be the incoming king one day. He's not installed in the office yet. Saul is still the king at this point. But now, here's where the plot thickens when we get to this point in history. King Saul, because of his constant wickedness and his constant disobedience and his constant rebellion, he's lost his mind. He's gone loony. He's lost his, his, he's lost his ability to think through. And God has removed his spirit from Saul. And Saul has lost his mind. He's lost God's spirit. He's also lost his mind. Now, there's a very interesting twist in the plot here. Saul's servants know that Saul has this loony streak about him. And he goes off the deep end and he goes crazy every now and then. And so the servants try to calm him down when he's in this nut phase of his life. And they think the best way to do that is to bring a musician in who will play a soothing harp and calm him down. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 16 and 17. 1 Samuel 16, go to verse 16. So the servants say, Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is, cunning, who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Now, friends, this is, in the Bible, this is the first usage of music therapy. Saul orders a musician to be brought in. So when he goes off the deep end, the musician will play the harp in a soothing manner and get him back on course. And guess who the, guess who the harp player is? Little old David. Saul has no idea that he is hosting the king who is going to replace him on the throne. But that's an interesting twist in the plot, isn't it? That Saul is hosting the very one who's going to take his place. Well, time passes. And we come to a very, very familiar account. I'm sure that Susan Moyer has taught this account to her little ones somewhere along the way. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. Of course, let me give you the short version of this story. I'm sure you know it well. Saul and the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. The Israelites on one side of the hill and the Philistines on the other side of the hill. And there in the middle, the valley, is where they would meet in battle. And the battle lines are drawn in the valley. The two sides on facing hillsides. The Philistines on one side and Israel on the other side. And there is a giant who daily comes to the valley floor, and he offers a challenge to Israel. His name is Goliath, and he taunts the Israelites day by day to send out one man, one Israelite, to fight him. And the winner of that battle will win the entire war. By the way, many wars were fought that way. Two of the greatest warriors would carry out the battle amongst the two of them, and whoever died lost the war for the entire side. So this was not an unusual battle plan. It was carried out many times. Now, Israel scared because this man, Goliath, Goliath, is huge. He is about nine feet tall. He wears heavy armor. According to scripture, his helmet is made of brass, probably weighs about 30 pounds. Uh, He he has a coat of mail, just kind of linked metal that covers him. Keeps the spears from penetrating his chest in a battle. That coat of mail supposedly weighs somewhere around 150 pounds that this giant is toting around. He has a massive 20-pound spear and a sword. Well, David's dad, uh, Jesse, knows that his sons are facing the Philistines at this valley. And so he sends his little son, David, the youngest, the shepherd. And he said, son, I want you to go take some provisions to my sons in the army, your brothers. And see how things are going there. He sends the shepherd boy to the battle lines, just to check in, just to be a set of eyes to check in, to see what's happening, to see how the battle is going. Well, you know the story. Little David comes to Saul and volunteers and says, I'll take him on. I'll take on Goliath. I have fought the tiger and the bear. I have been able to defeat them as a shepherd. I can defeat him by the power of God. Now, that's a very important point. David doesn't say I can defeat him because I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm good. It's by the power of God working through me that I can defeat Goliath. And you know by the strength of God, he faces the warrior with nothing but a slingshot and some smooth stones. And he kills him. I want you to take down this passage. Reread the story as we're going through this. Reread it in devotion tonight or tomorrow. 1 Samuel 17. Verses 38 through 51. And you know that as little shepherd boy David winds up that slingshot, that stone sinks into Goliath's forehead. And he falls dead on the ground and David takes his own sword and decapitates him. Well, after this huge victory over Goliath, David becomes a close friend to Saul's son, Jonathan. They become close like brothers. And Saul becomes super jealous because all of Israel is praising this little guy David for the great conquering of Goliath and they're ignoring Saul and Saul just is so jealous over that. In fact, it comes to the point that Saul in his mind wants this young man David dead. He wants to kill him. And Jonathan, David's friend, Saul's son, warns David about his dad's madness and his death threat upon David's life. And so he urges David to run, to get away, so Saul cannot track him down. And Saul and David spends more, and this is an important fact here, David spends more than ten years on the run, getting away from crazy Saul and his army. And also in the process of his staying away from Saul... David wrote many of the psalms in this particular phase of his life. One of them is Psalm 59. You don't have to turn there. Just write that reference down. Psalm 59. Let me just give you a little word from Psalm 59. You know, all of your psalms in your Bible, I won't say all of them, many, many of them have a definitive statement at the beginning of the psalm of where it came from or who wrote it. If you miss those statements, when you start reading the psalms again, always go way up to the very top And it will tell you in many of the Psalms who wrote it, maybe what the situation was going on. Now, for example, Psalm 59. It's a plea for deliverance from enemies, and it's to the chief musician. It's a miktam of David. When Saul sent, and they watched the house to kill David. So here's a Psalm that David writes while he's under the death threat of Saul. And it's called a miktam of, of David. A miktam uh, is basically a a written statement that is meant to be preserved. So David wrote this psalm, and Israel preserved these words. And as we look at just the very first verse of it, the first two verses of it, here's what it says. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloody men. So David, on the process of running from Saul, writes this. Now, as you read Psalm 59 all the way through, you find out that David is praising God. He's asking God to deliver him, but it comes to be a psalm of praise as well. Uh, but I wanted to define that word "miktam" for you, so that you would know that it's meant to be preserved. Uh, actually, "miktam" may mean it's a it's a hazy word in Hebrew, but it may mean an etching. So it'd be etched in stone that you would never forget it and never lose it. Now, before we come to the end of this lesson tonight, I want us to look at one of the most unusual moments recorded in the Bible. Go to First Samuel chapter twenty-eight. Saul is in a rage against David, and he consults a psychic. He consults a witch. Her location is a place called Endor, the the witch of Endor. And he disguises himself so that she does not recognize who this is as the king of Israel. And he asks this witch to conjure up Samuel, the old prophet, the old judge who had led Israel. He had long died. And so Saul goes to a, a psychic, a witch, and he asks her to conjure up Saul. This is interesting. Did a witch really, in the Bible, did a witch really conjure up the dead? I want you to look at, the, uh, just, I want you to look at a verse. This is kind of a revealing moment. Look at 1 Samuel 28. So you're going on through here, 1 Samuel 28, and look at verse 12. So here we have the witch, and she's doing her little incantation, or burning her candle, or looking at her crystal ball, whatever she does. And here's what happens. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. But this, is, this to me is a funny moment. Because she's doing her little incantation, doing what she does as a witch. And all of a sudden Samuel appears. And she goes, Oh my goodness! Which tells me she wasn't responsible for calling him up at all. God Almighty is the one who stirred Samuel to make this appearance. Not a witch. Not an incantation, but God sent Samuel back to deliver a message. Uh, this surprise that she has when Saul, uh, Samuel appears, uh, it wasn't her doing. She'd never done anything like that before. She didn't do it here. But she figured out that this was Saul who had come to her, the king. Now, listen, this, this is not an act of conjuring. This is an act of God that Samuel would come back to earth. We know that at the transfiguration, Moses came back to earth. Elijah came back to earth. We know that God has the power to do that if he so chooses. He chose in this moment to send Samuel back. She screamed in disbelief. She couldn't believe it was happening because it wasn't anything she had done. And what does the spirit of Samuel say to Saul? What is the conversation? Look at 1 Samuel 28, verses 15 through 19 so here we have Samuel the spirit who has been drawn up by God and Samuel said to Saul why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up and Saul answered I am sore distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God is departed from me and answereth me no more neither by prophets nor by dreams therefore I have called thee that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee, and is become thine enemy? The Lord hath done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand, and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, listen to this. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel says, you will be dead from this earth. Just as I have died and departed this earth, so too you will be dead tomorrow. And your sons... And not only will your lives be lost, but Israel will be lost in the battle to the Philistines. And Saul is scared out of his wits. And the next day, he is dead. As the Philistines press in, he commits suicide. He falls on his own sword just moments before the Philistines capture him. And his three sons also die in the battle. Philistia won the war and that sad note ends first Samuel so next week we'll open second Samuel and we're going to begin with the new king of Israel the second king of Israel a young man whose name is David and he rose to be one of the most prominent men in all of the Bible and all of the word of the Bible so we will begin a better section as we see Uh, David take over the reins of ruler of Israel next week thank you for joining me for the study tonight again this is a section of history that we need to clarify and understand and see how it flows because it does get tangled up in the biblical word and a lot of Christians get tangled up when they read that word so We're laying the timeline and laying the history so that you can see how God is progressing history, always moving toward our salvation, always moving toward bringing his love and his grace to his people. Thank you tonight for joining by media. Appreciate so much you being here. We will meet again next Wednesday night, same place, same time. God bless you. And uh, let's just have a, a brief word of prayer together as we dismiss our media congregation. Father God, thank you for our study tonight. Thank you for those who joined us by streaming tonight and those in the parking lot by FM. Lord, I am so thankful for your people, hungry for your word. And we meet in different ways, Father, but we meet as one people. And we thank you, Lord, that we worship one God alone. And we're so thankful, Lord, that tonight you have met with us and led us in the study. Bless us as we learn and apply this biblical word into ourselves, Lord, that we continue to serve and walk with and and worship the one God and one God alone through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will bless us as we will never compromise your word, that we'll never compromise our walk, that we will never compromise our ministry. Father, help us always to stand tall and true uh, in this world Lord as we serve the one God as all the world swirls around us help us to keep our eyes on you we love you and we thank you and we praise you in the strong name of Jesus Christ amen